I believe that nothing affects our life more than our theology. What we believe about God uh, makes the greatest difference in our life. I, I heard somebody say one time, a preacher used to say that everybody is a theologian. Uh, some are just good theologians and some are bad theologians. You know, Some of us think right about God and some of us think wrong about God. So before we get into tonight's lesson, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. But before we get there, let's uh, go to God in prayer and ask Him to help us to think right about Him. Father God, we, we often pray to You. And Lord, we often forget what a privilege it is to stand, to bow, to fall on our face at your throne. Father, to have boldness to come before you, to have the audacity to truly believe that you hear us, that you love us, that you consider us your children, that you consider us to be part of your covenant people. Father, thank you. Help us, Father, to think rightly about you, your majesty and your glory, your love, your grace, your righteousness, your holiness. Help us, Father, to know you. And Father, we pray that as we come to know you, that we will have a better understanding of your scriptures. And we pray, Father, that as we seek to understand you and understand these words that have been written, that you help us to live out the good news in our life. And Father, it's in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus, and our Savior. Amen. So we have been going verse by verse by verse through the book of Romans and talking about how God is a righteous God. God is a God that keeps his promises. God is a God that does right. He does right according to what, what he's promised. He does right according to what is right. Uh, he's fair. He's equitable. He's good. Uh, and we've talked about how chapters 1 through 5a, so we're going to like cut it off at chapter 5 and verse 11, but we're kind of putting it all together and summing up the first part of what we've talked about this way, that God displayed his righteousness like this. God displayed his righteousness this way. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, died for Jewish and non-Jewish sinners, everybody, all of humanity, so both might be in covenant relationship with God and inherit the world promised to Abraham, that that is how God manifests, God makes known his righteousness, is through his loving act of putting forth Jesus as a sin offering so that Jewish and non-Jewish sinners could be reconciled to him and be part of his covenant people and be heirs of Abraham heirs that will inherit the world that was promised to Abraham. And then we talked about last week, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, that through the trespass of Adam, the whole world suffered under the reign of death. And we have to understand that in chapter 5 and chapter 6 especially, Paul talks about sin and death, not just as the way we typically think of those things. And I was thinking this whole week, I was thinking maybe I didn't 
flesh that out enough, and, and maybe chapter 8 will help us to sort of flesh that out a little bit more. Um, but when we think about death, we, we typically think about just that final moment, right? The final moment of death, uh, the final moment of life. Um, but I, I think that there's, there's more to dying, right? There's more to dying, that we are dying people. We are enslaved to death. We know that we are, we are all terminal, right? That humanity is terminal. Um, but, but more than that, Paul talks about death as if death is a, a ruler, as if de- death is a king, death is a, is a slave master that has all of humanity in his grasp, in his grip, that we all suffer under the reign of death, like Israel suffered under the reign and the rule of Pharaoh, and then were delivered out of slavery, out of the reign and the rule of Egypt, and into the reign and the rule of God. And so Paul talks about both death and sin that way, that sin and death are these co-rulers that are co-ruling over humanity. But now, through the righteous act of Jesus, through Jesus' one act of righteousness, and remember how Paul contrasts that one act of rebellion sort of opened the door that death would come in and death spread to all humanity, not because we're related to Adam, but because we all Sinned. We all rebelled against God. And because we all sinned, death reigned over all of humanity through that one act of Adam. Sin and death came into the world. We're not going to watch Netflix, I promise. You were like, yes, finally, we get to watch Netflix at church. No, we don't. Sorry. We'll see if this works. I don't know. Every week, huh? I'm sorry. One of these days, I'll figure this thing out. Okay, so Paul talks about, it's not going to work, Tim. It's okay. Just throw something else up there. Turn on Netflix or something. I don't know. (laughs) So Paul talks about sin and death as if it is simply a, uh, as if it's a ruler that reigns and rules over all humanity. But Jesus comes along. And he contrasts that one act of Adam, one man, Adam, one man, Jesus, one act of rebellion versus one act of righteousness, doing what was right, being covenantly faithful to God and and doing what was right, even to the point of death, through that one act of righteousness, Jesus brought about the reign of grace. So through the righteous act of Jesus, grace now reigns and the result is life for the age to come, or as most of our Bibles read, eternal life. Life for the age to come is the result of Jesus' one act of righteousness. Through his one act of righteousness, now grace reigns. So let me read that sentence one more time, because it's not on the screen anymore. Huh? That happened last week with the same sentence, so I think maybe, maybe I shouldn't put it up there. So uh, Through the trespass of Adam, the whole world suffered under the reign of death, but through, but through the righteous act of Jesus, grace now reigns, and the result is life for the age to come. Okay, so if you got your Bible, and you'll have to because it's not on the screen, uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. So now, sort of the next logical question would be, right, if, if you're, you're a Jew, right? Okay, so you're kind of picturing yourself as a Jew, and you're reading this letter, or maybe you're a Gentile, and you're reading this letter, uh, but in the first part of the book, Paul really, 
really kind of lays it on pretty thick for the Jews, right? And telling them that you can't boast anymore in your Jewish ethnicity. You really have no, no sort of status with God above your Gentile brothers and sisters, that you're all, you're all deserving of punishment, but our gracious God has saved you. You all were slaves under the rule and reign of sin and death, but now through the righteous act of Jesus, not through your righteous act, but through the righteous act of Jesus, now, now you're under the reign of grace. Now, now, sort of the next logical question would be, well, what are you trying to say, Paul? Are you, are you saying I can, people just do whatever they want to? Especially when you consider the fact that Paul said, now listen, when, when lots and lots of sin happened, and, and, and in fact, the law increased sin, and it intensified sin, and it made it so that we could count sin, and sin became even more sinful because of the law, not that the law was bad, and he'll talk about all of that, but that it increased it, and it intensified it, and so there was tons of sin, and that means there's tons of grace, right? And, and, and Jesus kind of talked this way sometimes too, didn't he? He said, now listen, if, if somebody owes you a dollar, right, and somebody owes you $1,000, and you forgive both of them, to whom did you give the most grace? The one that owed you $1,000, right? You, you gave more grace to the one that owed you the more, right? right? And so he says there, there were tons of sin, and because of the law, the, the, the sin was increased because of the law, and now, now there's an abundance of grace and where there was tons of sin, and the people that were the most deserving of condemnation now are the greatest recipients of, of grace, right? And now grace rules over all of God's people. And so the next logical question would you say, well, are you saying that sin is, are you trying to say sin is a good thing, Paul? Are you saying so we should just sin so that grace can increase? Is that what you're saying, Right? And I don't think anybody, I mean, when I was growing up and people would quote this verse to me, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? I mean, it could be that some people were really thinking that, like, yes, <laughs> I can do whatever I want to because now I'm under grace and not under law and I can just live it up, you know? And maybe some people were thinking like that, but I doubt it. I think that was an accusation against Paul, that they were thinking that's what Paul was saying. They were accusing Paul of saying, oh, so now you're saying the whole world lives under grace. And these Gentiles, especially, right? So you, these Gentiles are coming in here and they don't have to observe our rules. They don't have to eat our food. They don't have to keep these holy days. We've kept these holy days for thousands of years, Paul. Sabbaths and Passovers, feasts of booths and the feast of dedication and Purim and all of these wonderful things that celebrate our heritage and what God has done for us, his people. And now you're saying these people can just come in and they can dress however they want to and they can eat whatever they want to and they don't have to keep our special days. And you're saying all of this is just out the window. I mean, what are you saying? Are you saying that somebody could just live a rebellious life and that grace abounds all the more to the people. You sin a lot and you get a lot of grace and so you just keep on living like that? Is that what Paul's saying? Is that what Paul's saying? You think? No, thank you. Okay, good, good. I just want to make sure we understand. Okay, so verse two, he says, by no means, right? No, no, don't think that way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, a couple things here. Really pay attention to the fact... Thank you. Nice. Awesome. Um, Just made that out of thin air or something. That's awesome. Um, Pay attention, verse 3. Baptized into his what? Death. And then verse 4. Buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Now, when I was growing up, and when somebody would try to teach me what death is, they would always emphasize that death is separation. And I suppose there's a sense in which that's true, that death is a separation that James talks about when the the body separated from the spirit is dead. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's what a dead body is, is a body in which there is no more spirit. Death really, and I think this is a more intuitive way to understand death, more than understanding it as a separation. I, I don't know that that's really a helpful way to think of death. Death is an end, isn't it? It's an end. It's a, it's a finality. And when you, when you live your life in sin, Paul says that the end of that, not just Paul, but the entirety of Scripture says the end of that lifestyle, the end of that path is what? It's death. It's like, I mean, maybe think of it like a train, right? And when you get on a train and the end of the track is where you're headed, and once you're on it, if there are no stops, you're going all the way to the end of the track, right? And that's where, that's where it's headed. And as soon as we begin down that track of disobedience and sin and rebellion, we belong to death. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. There's no, there's no oops, sorry, made a mistake, I'm getting off here. No, 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 it, you're going down. That's the path that you're on. And that's the path all of humanity is on. All of us just barreling down the track toward death with no way to, to stop it. I mean, you can, you can start making good decisions on the train, but you're already on the train. It doesn't matter. The end of that track is death. And all of humanity is, is terminal. And that's where we're headed. Now, what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus gives us an opportunity to unite with his death, Right? The only way you get off of this train is die. Uh, Jesus allows us to die with him, in a sense. To be buried. Our baptism is a uniting with Jesus. And not just a uniting with Jesus like, hey, I'm with him, I, I believe in him, I love him. All of that is true. But in this case, he's talking about when you're baptized, you're baptized into the death of Jesus. Like I said, that's the only way you get off the train, death. And Jesus is your way off the train, right? He's saying, this is the end for you. Because Jesus died for you, you can sort of go through his death and get off. Because that's what he's talking about in this whole context, right? He's saying, there's people that are going to accuse me of saying that when you live under the reign of grace, instead of under the law or under the reign of sin and death, that you just go on doing whatever you want to do. And Paul says, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. In fact, it's the very opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, when you're baptized into Jesus, you're baptized into his death. And that's the end. 
It's the end of that track. It's that end of the way of life. It's the end of that reign. It's the end of that, that path. It's the end of all of that. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, and most people don't finish that track until it's too late and they're dead. But Jesus gives us the opportunity to still be alive and yet have died, so to be off of that track, right? We're done with sin without having to die because we did die with Jesus. When we were baptized, we were united with him in his death so that we could sort of be raised to a different sort of life even while we are still alive in the flesh. So here we are in the flesh, and we've already died. We've already went through that. We, we, we got to the end of the track, and now we're done with the sin life, right? We're, we're done. We're not on that track anymore. We're not living that way anymore. We're not under that reign and that rule anymore. We're not under that emperor anymore. We're not under that Pharaoh anymore. We've been set free from that lifestyle, and now we're off the train. And we're like, this is different. This is new. I, I can't... Get back on the train. Are you crazy? Oh, they get back on the train. I need to get back on the train. I know where that train is headed, and I don't want to end up there. Jesus gave me an opportunity to die with him, and therefore, just death means finished. Death means the end. Death means final. And I'm done with that track. I'm done with sin. I'm done with that life. I'm done living under the rule and the reign of sin and death. I'm done doing what sin tells me to do. Verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, and I think Paul you know, kind of takes two ideas. In, in the last verse, he's saying that you're alive in a different way right now, right? Newness of life. This is a different life. But then there's even sort of a, there's a big fancy word, eschatological view, right? An end of the world, end of your life view in that even while we're alive right now, we're living a different kind of life, but we're even going to experience a resurrection just like Jesus' resurrection, right? That just like he went through death and death had no claim on him, why, why couldn't death hold Jesus? Why did death have no claim on him? Why, when Jesus got to the end, was it not the end for him? Because he was righteous. He was righteous. He did what was right. He wasn't a slave to sin. He wasn't a slave to sin and death. Therefore, death couldn't hold him. And so he rose. And when you end that train ride, when you end that life of sin by going through Jesus' death, and come out on the other side and live in newness of life, you live a life that's no longer under the reign and rule of sin, then when you die, you will be righteous, right? Because you're in Jesus. And that's what Paul's been talking about this whole time, that through the righteous act of Jesus, you are, because of your faith in Jesus, just like Abraham had faith in God, you're considered to be righteous. You've been justified. You've been given this gift of God's grace and mercy. God has given you a gift. A gift is a right relationship with him. And now you're living as a person 
who got off the train, a person who got out of the rat race of sin and death. It ended for you the same way it ends for everybody, death. Only you sort of piggybacked on the death of Jesus so that you could come out the other side while you're still alive and live in newness of life. But that requires that you actually live a different kind of a life, right? And baptism isn't just, hey, I'm just like everybody else now. I'm just forgiven. You know, the, there's an old song, you know, the only difference between sinners and saints is some are forgiven and the other ones ain't. You know, I mean, but, but there should be a bigger difference than that, shouldn't it? That's what Paul's saying. There has to be. Because now you're saying, I'm, I'm done with that race. I'm done with that life. I died. I'm out. I don't live under that reign and that rule anymore. Now I live a new sort of life. And now when I die, when, when this body dies, just like Jesus, death will have no claim on me because I will be righteous. And at the resurrection of the righteous, I will be raised to live forever just like Jesus. If we are united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old self, that was a slave to sin, that was in bondage to death, it was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, and I'll probably get to this in just a second, but Jesus condemned sin, right? On the cross, Jesus condemned sin. And he he said with his whole life, that culminated in his death, I won't go along with you. I will be faithful to my father. I will do what what is right. Even, Even if I die, I will do what was right. I will be faithful even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I will do what is right. And he condemned sin. He fought sin. Sin swallowed him up, and yet it couldn't hold him. And when we're baptized, we're saying, I want to be crucified with Jesus. I want, to, I want to be with him in his death. I want to, in my life, and in dying with him, and in being buried with him in baptism, and then being raised up to walk in this new kind of life, I want to be the kind of person that I also condemn sin and say, I'm done with it, and I don't want to go along with you anymore, and I don't want to live that way anymore, and I don't want to act that way anymore. I don't want to be enslaved to you anymore. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, right? Now, I mean, usually that happens when there's, that's, that's it. There's no second chance, right? You're done sinning, right? I mean, you could be the world's most notorious person, right? I mean, we could think of a few names of people that have been horrible, no good, awful, very bad, evil, wicked people in the world, and they've done all kinds of wickedness, and when they're dead, well, that reign of that terror is over, right? They're done sinning because they're dead, right? And the same is true with us. When we die with Jesus, when we're buried with Jesus... We're done. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, 
will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I I love that phrase. It says that he died to sin once for all. On behalf of all people, he said, not only for himself, I condemn sin. I take on sin. I'm not going to give in to you. I'd rather die than join you. And when we're baptized, we join with Jesus. We die with him. We imitate his faithfulness and his righteousness in our death. We're united with him and his death becomes our death so that we can live with him and we're raised up in this life to live a new life. And when we actually die, we, even though we die, yet shall we live. And we will experience a resurrection just like his. And that's kind of fun to me to stop and think about. It's kind of wonderful to stop and think about. That same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, where the tomb was empty, the same will be true of our graves, that our, ourselves will be raised up and we will live with the Lord forever. And, and we, can, we can know that with absolute confidence, not because of us, but because of what he did. And when we were baptized, we joined with that. We gained that confidence. We gained that promise but, but that also requires, and again, we have to keep in mind the context of what Paul is saying. In this entire chapter, his argument is, but that has to change the way you live, right? Now, now don't, think for, don't, don't think that what he's saying is perfection, right? But th- there, is a sort of, there is sort of a fatality, a fatalistic way of thinking about sin, I have that, that sort of thinking whenever I'm on a diet. You ever go on a diet and then you, like, you mess up, right? And, like, if I, if I, I mean, maybe I'm going good for a day or two and I'm eating the right things and I'm not eating the bad things. And then I, just without thinking, I stuff a big old brownie in my mouth, you know, and I'm like, that was, and then I think, oh, no, I blew it. And then I think, okay, well, I got to shape up. and get, No, I don't think that at all. I say, pfft. I already blew it. Who cares? Whatever. Give me the pizza. Pass the Cheetos. You know, and I just, I just gorge myself. Why? I already blew it. What difference does it make now? Psst. What difference? That doesn't make any sense. That's not logical, but that's exactly how we are, isn't it? I, I posted on Facebook this week, and some of y'all may have seen it, but there's a, there's a poem. I wish, if I had thought about it, I would have brought it with me, but um, the poem is called The Street Girl, and it was written by Bonnie Parker, of Bonnie and Clyde infamy. Um, but but it's, it's a poem that, that she wrote, I think, before she met Clyde, before she went on the, the spree that, that ended in death, right? Before it ended in death, she wrote this poem, and it's all about how she'd like to stop living as a street girl. She grew up on a farm, and once upon a time, she thought of herself as a good girl, and, but then she sort of got mixed up with the wrong sort of guys and went from one guy to the next to the next to the next, and she found one guy, and he left her in a, 
in a opium house or something. And I mean, it, it was just one thing to the next. And, and it's like she's talking to somebody who's proposing marriage to her. And she says, you know, listen, there was a time in my life I probably would have said yes. And I probably would have thought that I could change and things could be different. But they can't. Things can never change for a person like me. It's too late. And there is that sort of fatality, that sort of shame that maybe we've lived in and all of humanity lives in. And we just sort of think, this is the way it is. This is, this is the way I live and this is sort of, and I, you know, I know I shouldn't and it's probably not good and I don't like what happens and this is, just, but it's just, it's just too hard and I just, I don't know, I don't know any other way and I'm just, I'm just broken. I don't know what else to do. Right? I mean, that's sort of how we, we tend to think about things. And Paul is saying, listen, that's done. That sort of fatalistic thinking that says, I don't have any choice, it's over. You're set free from that. You're not that person anymore. All of the shame, all of the humiliation, all of the guilt, all, all of it, it's gone. And you're brand new. Your path ended in death. But it wasn't yours. It was Jesus. And now you get a second chance to live a different life, not under the reign of law, not under the reign of sin and death, but under the reign of grace. Under the reign of grace. You get to live your life under the reign of grace. And and, and before anybody says, okay, so that means I could just go back to, no, why would you go back to that? Why Don't you know what kind of brokenness and humiliation and shame and death that ends in? Why would you live that life? Jesus is offering you an opportunity to live a different sort of life, brand new. And and here's what happens when you live that sort of life. Okay, we all know that, or we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, You think of yourselves now, not as shameful, broken, I blew it, I shouldn't have done it, I don't have any choice, I'm just that kind of person. Don't think of yourself that way anymore. That's not how you consider yourself. You now are alive. You're alive, but you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And just the way God, Jesus says to God, I'm yours. I want to be your tool and your instrument in the world. I want to do your will, not my will. That's, that's you now. You get to be that person because you've experienced the end of the train through Jesus and now you get a second chance. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign in your body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I mean, just think of it in your mind. Go back to that train. You've all seen a movie where the guy is on the train and the train is barreling down the track and you know it's going to go off. The bridge is out and the train is going to go over the edge and he thinks he's going to die. It's certain. There's no hope. And somehow, some way, he's rescued. And that's your story. Your, your life was barreling towards death and finality and that's it. And You were on that path and you got to die and escape before you actually went over the cliff. And now you're out. What now? 
What now? And we always make promises, right? People always make promises to God. God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll do anything for you. I'll give you everything. I'll belong to you. You know, if you just get me out of this mess, I'll do this, that, and the other. You're out of the mess. So now what? Now present yourself to God and say, God, these fingers now, they used to do all kinds of things, but now they belong to you. And these eyes, they used to look at all kinds of things, but now they're your eyes. And this mouth, oh, the things it used to say, oh, now it belongs to you, God. And these feet, they used to take me all kinds of places, but now they belong to you. Why? Because there's like a long list of rules that say, okay, do this with your feet. There's a long list of rules that says, do this with your hands. There's a long list of rules that says, do this with your eyes. No, no, because you saved me. You delivered me. I was dead and now I'm alive. And now everything belongs to you because from my heart, I want to obey you because of your righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you, over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And then, of course, you know, I mean, people that are used to the law, they got to ask these questions. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Why would you do that? Go back to what you were before. Go back to where you were headed before. Get back on the train that ends in death. Why would, you, why would you do that? But people have a tendency to do that, don't they? I mean, think about the Exodus story. As soon as they were out of Exodus, they started saying, well, pff, I guess we should go back, you know? Stuff's hard out here. Why would you go back? Don't you know what it was like there? Your righteous God is delivering you and saving you and giving you all of his promises. Why would you go back? Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the, what? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. God's righteousness, God's grace changes our hearts, doesn't it? It changes us, and it says, listen, God, I'm not perfect, and I'm still not perfect, and I'm still, mm, I'm still struggling, but I want to do your will. I want to please you. Before, I thought I was hopeless. I thought I was stuck in this rat race because I was, but now I'm not a slave anymore. Now I want to be your slave. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time? From the things of which you're now ashamed. I mean, it's like the Dr. Phil moment, right? I mean, how's that working out for you, right? How is that working out for you? How did that work out for you? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is life, eternal life, life for the age age to come. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's my summary of chapter six. Baptism means 
the end of living under the reign of sin and death and the beginning of living under the reign of grace, which results in obedience and sanctification and eternal life. Baptism is where that begins. Not perfect, but it begins a life of saying, oh God, you saved me. And because you saved me, I want to obey you. And the more you obey, the more sanctified you become. And and the end result of everything God has done for us is life in the age to come. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Lord, help us to obey out of gratitude. Help us to obey because we've been changed. Help us to obey because we live under the reign of grace through our King Jesus, who has set us free. Father, bless us as we struggle to be your slaves, to present the members of our body to you, to be used to do your will for your glory. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.